Well, hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, I talk about the chronoception of one wheeling with an Olympic champion. And oddly, that's not a Christopher Nolan reference. Then, go ahead and grab your schnitzel with both hands and pound it flat in anticipation of this disturbing deep dive about just how easy it is for a country to slide over the edge of the moral cliff. Get ready for... Unza Mutter, Unza Vata, a.k.a. Generation War. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett, how are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty awesome, man. Looking good on video today, man. So I would say that it's great to see your face, but man, I just spent like a whole amazing weekend with you. So it's good to see your face again. How about that uh, skydiving trip, man? Uh, it was pretty wild. It was pretty yeah, it, wild. It was it was a pretty amazing weekend. Uh, Brett and I haven't really skydived together in maybe 10 years, as you guys know. So we went out to Texas and we pretty much hit it hard. Like we were doing skydives from 18,000 feet all weekend long. We, uh, jumped with a sky ball, which is a lead filled tennis ball that falls 180 <laughs> miles an hour. I didn't, I, uh, I had heard of sky ball jumps, but I can't say I've ever done one. I, I think I've played with a sky ball in the tunnel in the wind yeah. tunnel, but it's a totally it's a different, different experience. Totally. It's a little different when you have uh, the uh, the ground under you and you have the responsibility of catching that thing, not letting it crater into the <laughs> farmer's field. <laughs> or the highway, but uh, that would never happen. Never. No. Never. Not with me, ball mastering, buddy. <laughs> you got that right. So uh, how did it feel like for you to get out there and get into those? I'd say they were pretty advanced skydives we were doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I was um, a little bit intimidated, to be honest with you. But, you know, because these are all people that I used to work with at the wind tunnel or were my bosses. And pretty much everybody there, actually, not pretty much, with 100%, every single person on that trip that was invited out to Texas to skydive was a former wind tunnel instructor from Colorado. So, uh, you know, everybody's skill level was pretty high. Uh, of course, Rusty was there and we've talked about Rusty on a previous episode. He, he's literally one of the best skydivers in the world and was Henry Cavill's stunt double in Mission Impossible Fallout. And of course you were there and you've been on a team with Rusty. And so, yeah, I, I feel like the pressure was on to just not mess up. And then if you, everyone was judging you, <laughs> if you remember that very <laughs> first jump, I, I was in the base and I felt like, okay, this is going very well. It feels very solid. I like this. And then wha-bam, just fly right into Ivan, the drop zone owner. And I couldn't shout out to Ivan, by the way, <laughs> I didn't even know what had happened, but <laughs> fortunately for me, 
outside video revealed that I that I was burbled. My legs, basically, that means somebody got under my legs and I couldn't really hold that head down position. And uh, of course, the guy that burbled me is our our friend and he's awesome. He's definitely a better flyer than I am. And he's like, sorry, man. And I'm like, no, no, like it's, it's just very nice to have the, uh, kind of the pressure off a little bit. Cause that was not, not the good, a good way to start the first skydive. Yeah. You get it all out of your system. You like take out the drop zone owner first <laughs> thing. Like, all right, well it's only uphill from here. Oh man. It was awesome. Everybody was just so good. So cool. Super welcoming. It's a great drop zone. It was a great group of people. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I like these ambitious skydives. I like these like big grand master plans. Even if it doesn't happen, it, you're still skydiving. It's still fun. Yeah, it was great. So um, I would highly recommend Skydive 35 to anyone out in Texas. Such a sick drop zone. Oh, so if you guys are ever out that nice. way, yeah, definitely check out Skydive 35 and Ivan. Nice. So what do you got, buddy? What do you got for off top today? Yeah, um, so I was... A little unsure as to what to name this off top because usually we have like one subject or one topic that we discuss. Um, so I thought about calling this chronoception. I mm-hmm. thought about calling. Right. I thought about calling this John K. Coyle, the person I will be talking about. I also thought about ta- uh, calling this off top one wheeling with an Olympian. Cause <laughs> oh, man, actually, I know where this is going, and I'm really excited to hear a deep dive on this. Yeah, so um, as you know, I recently did with my wife in our Airstream kind of a, a road trip loop of the east. Um, on the way back towards Colorado, we ended up in South Dakota. We were had some dispersed camping at the Badlands, um, which is just kind of this like beautiful open field next to a cliff. It's very scenic. It's lovely. Um, and it's free. It's free camping. Um, and we ended up staying there for a couple of days because the weather was getting pretty crappy all around us. I mean, freezing snow rain, just typical 2020 apocalypse kind of weather for that time of the year. But you know, we just kind of decided, okay, we needed a break from driving. We're just going to stay a couple of days. So I'm, of course, one wheeling around as you and I are uh, want to do. And Bree's going for a jog. And this this guy in this, like... Jogging is so <laughs> this century. Yeah. One wheeling, that's the jogging of the future. It, it, it You know, I've, I've been loving the uh, one wheel videos of you, like, pushing the stroller and walking the dog. We're going to have to share some of those on the Instagram, I think. Dad of the future. So um, this gentleman in this like black suit, like a like a race suit um, on a bicycle, biked up to me and just started this conversation about my one wheel. And he was saying, you know, oh, how do you like that thing? I had the XR, then I got a pint and just super friendly guy. Uh, definitely looks like a serious biker. And, you know, of course, I love talking about the one wheel as we've done on several episodes. It's awesome. Uh, so then he proceeds to invite us back to his class A uh, that him and his girlfriend just purchased because they're now full timing on the road like my wife and I have been doing for seven years. I think the for them it had been like um, 
maybe two weeks now. So we kind of finish our one wheel slash jog, end up back in his camper, uh, just get to chatting about kind of life on the road and, and his uh, motorhome is very, very nice. And um, his girlfriend ended up being a Southwest flight attendant. So we talked about that for a little bit. And then we invited him back to our Airstream and said, hey, you know, if you just want to check out another travel trailer, uh, come on over. Uh, so I I don't know exactly how this came up, but Bree was the one to kind of detect that this gentleman we were talking to was like a serious athlete. I think she asked if uh, something about biking and She's like, is that a Henry Cavill stunt double <laughs> muscle suit under your shirt or is that all natural? I mean, after the fact, Bree said it was something about the way that he moved and carried himself, which is really interesting to me. So you can totally tell like people are like super heads up like life pilots, man. Yeah. Like you can spot a life pilot just with just kind of like their attitude and the way they move through the world. Totally. So just out of the blue, Bree said have you ever been in the Olympics? And she was talking about uh, riding a bicycle, uh, cycling. What a specific question. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, yes, he had, but not for cycling. Turned out we were talking to uh, an Olympian, a silver medalist from the 1994 Winter Olympics for speed skating, the short track. Yeah, that is awesome. (laughs) So uh, he also was a world champion cyclist, of course, because he can't speed skate all the time. Classic. Um, so we got to spend several days with this amazing guy and we're now like on a first name basis with him. We're like email buddies and I'm super hyped about it. We went back to his, uh, motorhome the next day and we got into just this really interesting conversation. He's the only person that I have met besides you that has brought up Mihail Csikszentmihalyi, the <laughs> flow psychologist like man, I'm already a fan. Brought, what, brought what was the and, what was the Olympian's name? His name is John Coyle. I'm gonna put several links. Uh, I'm gonna link his website, his Wikipedia. Um, also, there's a couple of videos that I'm gonna talk a little bit about. I know that you saw one of them, so I'm gonna put a bunch of links in the show notes. Um, and now the show notes are working for Spotify. So if you have Apple Podcasts, if you have Spotify. Definitely check out the show notes. We always put references, links for stuff that you can continue your contentology studies. It's a real thing. That's right. Um, and also the website, cchpod.com. You can also find all our links there. But back to John. So he is just somebody that, um, like a lot of athletes, that I think really dive into the mental aspect of sports. John didn't just stop at unlocking the secrets of himself and pushing himself, but he's really dived into the psychology of action sports. And of course, I think this is absolutely fascinating. Now it's like what we think about all the time. All the time. It's like 90% of what we talk about on our content show. All the time. And with John's connections, like he's actually buddies with Stephen Kotler, famous author of The Rise oh of Superman. Um, you know, he mentioned Mi- Mihail Csikszentmihalyi. And so John Coyle is now uh, kind of billed as the time guy 
because he's specifically interested in this concept that I mentioned at the top of the off top, chronoception. Now, this is the idea that time changes. Our perception of time changes based on what kind of activity we're doing. Now, does this go just beyond like the idea of time dilation? So is he is he like theorizing that the actual dimension of time changes based on the observer? Well, I, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but he probably would say yes, as far as I understand. Now, I don't think he's specifically talking about like the physics or the metaphysics um, or like the quantum science of time. However, you know, what is time really other than our perception of it? You know, I mean, we human construct. Absolutely. And we've already learned from Einstein that it is relative. So maybe there is even more to unpack here. But I think what he is referring to, um, his idea of chronoception is that time is not linear. And the only observer is time is ourselves. And it bends and it stretches and it folds. And it's also different after the fact when you're looking back. So in the moment something that might you know pass very suddenly might actually be uh, a longer stretched out memory later and and one of the experiments that he brought up was this uh, experiment that this psychologist did with a watch that was actually I believe in uh, Dallas it was something very similar to the nothing but net where you used to work you know what I think I know what you're talking about yep. and I believe that happened at the same place I worked at Zero Gravity. I remember hearing about this experiment. I think it happened on the site there. I used to work at a bungee jump park when I was in college. And we had a uh, a ride called the Nothing Manette, which was like, it was like a 150-foot uh, oil derrick-style tower. And you would ride up in a cage. And as the cage went up, it would pull this giant net up underneath it on bungee cords. And then we would lower people out of the the cage pull a release and you'd free fall 100 feet into the net and when it would catch you it would like collapse around you kind of like uh the uh parachuteless skydive that luke akins did the uh the exact same type of device and right I, I would put money on this happening in the exact same place i i that i worked yeah i'm pretty sure it did so the kind of the premise was you would look at a clock and you would like start this stopwatch as you're falling. And they were trying to figure out, um, you know, whether or not time actually slows down. Because we, th- we think that it does, right? Like people that experience, you know, people in action sports, like skydiving, like it, it seems like time slows down. But I think now what they're figuring out and what John explained to me is what's happening is the hippocampus and the amygdala are two parts of the brain that are really involved in making memories. Um, The amygdala is like a very emotional memory center. Now, when we are activated, when we're on a skydive or we're, you know, riding our one wheel at 25 miles an hour, we're actually increasing the, the, the snapshots of memory. So at the moment, time isn't changing it's when we look back and we've taken all we've taken extra snapshots of a particular moment so relative to all of our other memories it seems like it's been slower because it's almost like a higher frame rate of memories but so this is all his his concept of chronoception 
And now John is uh, an author and a speaker, and I'm going to link to a TED Talk from him. Uh, his TED Talk is absolutely fantastic. It's, I think, about 18 minutes long. I recommend it for everybody. It's how to design moments that help you live almost forever. And then he put together like a three-minute video that's just like a mind warp trip. Um, it's called How to Design Endless Summers, Time Expansion Explained. And that is the concept of it is he's trying to hack or he's trying to help you hack your brain and basically manufacture moments that that slow down time when you're in the future looking back. So anything oh, where you're like, like total recall. super engaged in the moment. Really cool guy. It's uh, such a cool <laughs> idea. And didn't you say that he was like a corporate speaker now, like giving this kind of information to like corporate groups and yeah, so it, he has a really, really interesting story, and um, I did get his book. It's uh, it's so brilliant. It's signed. I'm really stoked about it, and um, it's called Design for Strengths. I, I'm hoping he goes into his story in the book because his story is just super fascinating, and I don't feel like I would uh, do it justice, but to quickly explain, I think he had to overcome some some difficulty when he did not make the Olympic team four years after he had won the silver medal. I mean, he was going for that gold and he spoke a little bit about how the training regimen was changed up. And I mean, it totally crushed him. And he talked about, uh, you know, how athletes at the highest level experience depression. They experience, there's high suicide rates, you know, and, and so I, I'm guessing Uh, that this is something that he went through as well. I mean, he was talking, he was diving into the psychology of all sorts of pro athletes that really struggle to find purpose and meaning once their athletic career ends. But this is not, uh, this is not a dumb guy. I mean, this isn't a, like a jock. He had a uh, engineering degree from Stanford University. You know, he, uh, in the professional world, he landed on his feet, I think he was just crushing it in the corporate world. Um, But it wasn't until he told this story, he told this anecdote to somebody to illustrate this point. And somebody overheard this little conversation and said, you need to tell this story in front of this group of people. I'm going to invite you to this thing. And it just snowballed from there. And now he's, he's literally paid to travel and speak to people. Um, I mean, I, I'd say like as a motivational speaker, I mean, he's an extremely motivational guy. And once you see these videos, you'll understand, but it's interesting because the, it seems like the, the company pays him, but it, it seems like he's speaking more to the people and he's like, he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I'll inspire your people for company stuff, whatever, but more he's trying to, get down to people on an individual level and get them to live life to their fullest. And I don't know if I should say this, but you know, we, we don't have millions of uh, listeners yet. So I think I can get away with putting this out there. He, he did tell me that a few employees of these companies would quit and would reach out to him and tell him, 
They like <laughs> were sick of his job, sick of their really like getting their money's worth <laughs> out of him, getting sick of this dead end job, and they quit. And they they're like stoked about it. And he considered it like a personal win when that happened because he, you know, he's he's there to like inspire people to create these meaningful moments. Well, the individual inspiration is going to be so much different than what the corporation is looking for. And that was the thought that I got when I watched his video. You know, it, it talked about how, you know, like time compresses and you grow older and life goes faster whenever you're doing these things that are like soul crushing. And, I, and you know, I was thinking when you were telling me he's like a, a corporate spokesperson. Now he like does these inspirational speeches. And I was like, man, this is, this is very counter to what I would think that they would want their employees to hear. But at the same time, it's also very inspiring because I know like just for, you know, being a skydiver for 20 years and basically like trying to pursue that kind of lifestyle, it really like, you know, it's, it's been put into perspective for me, how important it is. These experiences are. And even when I'm sitting at home and doing like design work, which I love doing there's a certain part of me that's just like, man, I just should be out there doing something awesome right now. You know, I should be building experiences and just having to sit here and do this job that I've kind of imposed upon myself is just a little bit of my soul gets crushed every time I have to do something that's not just like totally living the dream. Not building a uh, 12-way head down formation in Texas at 18,000 feet. That's living, man. That's making long memories right there. <laughs> it is. And I'll tell you, um, just to wrap up, John pulled out his silver medal uh, the last time we hung out with him. Oh, and Bree and I had our Olympic hats on with our names on them because we love the Olympics. We are big Olympic fans. And he just stuck his medal in Bree's hand and I'm holding it. And we got a picture with him. And that is a memory that uh, I it certainly will last a long time as I look back on it. So that thanks, one extended John. your lifespan. Yeah. That is so dope. I would love to hold an Olympic medal someday. Yeah. Maybe the one wheel will make it to the Olympics one day. You, you never, never know. know. <laughs> it doesn't look cool, but it is cool. <laughs> I think it looks cool. It's debatable. My, uh, something I had to accept right off the bat is like the way this looks is not going to impress anyone. But as soon as you stand on it, you're like, oh man, I got to get one of these magic future hoverboards. Yeah. Like nothing, huh. nothing feels cooler on the ground than a one wheel. Oh yeah, for sure. So what's new on your content circuit, buddy? Oh boy. Um, I haven't had much time for, for fun content. It's um, your life story. <laughs> I know it's crazy. I've been, uh, I checked out a couple episodes uh, of Dave on Hulu because we introduced you at the skydiving event to this rapper named Lil Dicky. Oh, man. That I couldn't couldn't believe you really weren't familiar (laughs) with. So good. And so it kind of inspired me to check out his show. It's kind of an autobiographical, dark kind of comedy. Uh, about Little Dicky starring Dave Bird, Little Dicky. So, oh, that sounds good awesome. stuff. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I was totally sold on Little Dicky from the first 
bar is that what they call it <laughs> spitting bars man dude yeah he's really good yeah he's really good I have to check that out yeah yeah how about you what's on your content circuit so i found a new podcast i actually found it through a message on our instagram um it's called general snobbery and they actually you should tell people about how it came to us because it came to us through something that you brought up on the show. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so um, it was our Black Panther episode where I referenced an article that was in Rooster Magazine by Sean Lawler That's that was basically arguing the uh, purple heart-shaped herb in Black Panther was a direct reference to ayahuasca. Uh, of course, I you know, found him on Instagram and, and tagged him in our Instagram post. And you can find our, our Instagram at the content clearing house, just like the show. And he just reached out and, uh, you know, we kind of connected on there and then got a message about general snobbery, found out that one of the hosts of general snob snobbery was the author of that article but I haven't gotten the chance to listen to the show yet, but just, you know, it's a really small world of like people that love movies and, you know, try to find like hidden meaning and, and some, uh, you know, some extra depth. It's really good show. Yeah. It's, uh, Matt and Sean, they host the show and they, they even mentioned it in the message that, uh, they said something like from one contentologist to another and dude, they are like total contentologists, right? Which I assure everyone is a real thing, but they, I think they reside more on the opposite end of the contentology spectrum than us. So I'd say we are on the appreciating end of the contentology spectrum. They are on the hater end. We're easy to please Josh. I wouldn't say that. I'm not easy to please. I have very (laughs) high standards for content, but when I find something that I love, I basically go all in on it. Now, these guys, they are like extremely deep thinkers about movies. Like their, their show is about movies, but they also like tear movies apart. It's pretty funny. It's like basically like kind of, it's kind of like being back in high school where you're just sitting around just like talking shit about everything that passes through your field of view. And it's just like, you can't stop laughing. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's what the show feels like. So I listened to their show on avatar today and they were, <laughs> I think that they like reluctantly liked Avatar. <laughs> there are parts of them that sound like they were just like punching themselves in the head because they, they couldn't help but like it. But they yeah. also like tore it apart. Like they kind of made the same joke that I always make that Michelle Rodriguez is Michelle Rodriguez in every movie she's ever been in. Yeah. So they, they brought something like that up. But if you, uh, you know, if you guys want to maybe round out your, uh, your contentology intake and you want to hear a couple of haters snobbing on some <laughs> movies, you should check out general snobbery. It's fantastic. I can't wait to check it out. Yeah. I've been like mainlining it for the last few days and they, they're always joking about their one listener. So like, Oh yeah, we got our one listener that keeps writing reviews to us and stuff. And so, I mean, Hey guys, now you got two, yeah. maybe three if we can get bread on board. Yeah, that's true. And you know what, with, with our giant audience, uh, this thing's going to grow exponentially, man. It's going to blow up. <laughs> you guys are going to be at 14, 15 in no time. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, how about we take a quick break and then when we get back, we'll get into some content. Ooh, content. 
The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now, it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. (gasps) Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm contentologist Brett, not an Olympian, unfortunately, but Josh does have a lot of medals. He is a contentologist, and he's about to lay it on us. I'm going to tear your ears a new content he's hole, buddy. Spit some bars of content. <laughs> <laughs> so today, I'm going to talk about a little German mini-series called Generation War. So the original German title is Unsa Muda Unsa Vada, which translates (laughs) as Our Mothers and Fathers, which honestly, after watching this and after talking about this, you're not going to have any idea why it's called that. I still cannot even piece together where that title comes from in Germany. Hmm. They may be an efficient people, but maybe not the best at naming things. And maybe so it, maybe the, it's uh, an idiomatic expression for something. It could be, yeah. Huh. It's it's never made clear in the show, but it's a uh, it's a German World War II miniseries in three parts. It was commissioned by uh, the public broadcasting organization ZDF. You know ZDF, Brett. Sure, your favorite German public broadcasting yeah. organization. <laughs> and uh, it first aired in Germany and Austria in March 2013. So. This series tells the story of five German friends. They're like these 20-year-olds, and they're on different paths through Nazi Germany and World War II. Two of the characters, uh, Friedhelm and Wilhelm, they are Wehrmacht soldiers, and they're on the Eastern Front. One of the characters, Charlie, uh, she's a war nurse. Another one of the characters, Greta, is an aspiring singer. She's kind of like a socialite, and she wants to she wants to like move up and use the... I guess like the the way Germany is developing to just break out into a singing career. And then the last one, Victor, is he's a, a Jewish tailor. 
And the narrative spans four years. It starts in 1941 in Berlin when the friends, they all meet up for this last secret party before it's broken up by the Schutzstaffel, the SS. And then they embark on their different journeys. And they kind of have like this thing, like they're vowing they're going to all meet up by Christmas, which you know them going off to World War II. Not going to happen. Yeah. And it was kind of like heralded as being the German band of brothers. Mm. So it's a, like I said, a German speaking miniseries. And you know how much I love native language films. I think this will be our third subtitled film that we've covered on the show. We're getting into snob territory. We are. We're so cultured. (laughs) We just love reading and watching at the same time. So there is before, I mean, I will snob on it just a little bit right here because I've been inspired. So part of the story is told through the obligatory like voiceover that's so popular in war movies. It's kind of like the letters home to grandma feel that was popularized in movies like Platoon. And I'll be honest, like I started off and I was like, man, this is kind of cheesy. But as it went on and this as the story got like more intense and just like deeper and I guess gnarlier is a way to say it, that really grew on me because it it, it did kind of like make you feel like you're actually there and you know the uh the letters home like the voiceover is kind of like subdued versions of what's actually happening so you kind of get the feeling that this is what they are telling people back home about what's happening and then you see it through their point of view and it's just so much worse it's it's so understated in their letters home which is kind of a cool storytelling aspect hmm interesting so the brothers, I'm only going to talk about a, a few of the of the character groups. Uh, I do want to leave some of it, you know, to go and watch. And I'm not going to reveal too much as far as spoilers go. But watching this, it really just brought up a lot of a lot of themes and a lot of ideas and things that were just kind of rolling around in my head while I was, you know, it, it took me about 15 hours to watch this like four hours of content because I kept pausing it and like going and like researching things and writing down because it, it was so many different viewpoints about World War II that I'd never been exposed to before. Hmm. So the brothers, uh, Friedhelm and Wilhelm, like I said, they are in the Wehrmacht, which is just the, the German combined forces. And they kind of provide like the moral center for something that would otherwise be completely immoral and non-sympathetic. And Nazis are basically the, the standard video game enemy. You know, it's, it's an enemy type that's so universally despised that there's never any complaints when you're just like mowing them down by the thousands in video games. Yeah. So by presenting the brothers as sympathetic characters, you're kind of given a window into the fact that the Nazis, although they may be universally reviled as a whole, there is like a a different personal level. And on that personal level, there were always these varying viewpoints. You know, this is something that we have brought up on the show before. And I feel like, it's it's more important now more than almost any other time in history to remember that that like Nazis didn't start out as evil awful people they just are people they just were people and then yeah. they got caught up uh because of a variety of political factors into this extreme nationalist extreme fascist view that led to the death of millions of people in a genocide and a horrible, horrible, evil disaster. And if we don't acknowledge that fact, 
then it could happen again. So I, I do think it's like a really, really interesting piece of content because it's just so easy to explain away like, oh yeah, the Nazis, they were evil. You know, th- they were just people, man. It could happen and again. It's very interesting. I mean, that's like a, a big part of what I was researching and just like the the avenues of thought that I was having, especially when considering the two brothers that are in the German military, it's like exactly along that line, that line of thought. Mm-hmm. It's just like how, you know, like an American soldier today may do his job and perhaps he doesn't support the commander in chief or even his own officers, but he's essentially a cog in the machine, you know, and the soldiers in this, in this series are presented as having viewpoints that are counter to the views of Hitler. But ultimately, they're really in no position to protest any of the larger issues at hand. You know, most of the time, they really have no idea what's happening. They're only privy to their small little slice of events. Mm-hmm. And undoubtedly, like that defense of action completely breaks down as you travel further up the chain of command. As the people that are in the know and are planning these atrocities, you know, like those people are in no way defensible and that's why you know the nazi leadership they were tried and a lot of them were executed in nuremberg because of that Mm -hmm. but the story does try to show and i think it does a really good job showing that there may have been like a different viewpoint on the ground yeah interesting it's a really interesting trick that this film plays on you since you're following these characters from the beginning they are more or less the protagonists and as much as anyone you know it can be considered that in the nazi army but you witness these guys like protesting these more grotesque actions of the SS, like execution of innocents. And they basically, you know, it's their job to stand there and provide security. And, you know, you're through their conversations, you know, you know that they don't support these actions, but they're also, they're just like, one of them's a Lieutenant, one of them's a private. And those are not ranks that allow you to really do anything other than just follow orders at that point. But through that through that kind of interaction with, you know, like the more evil portions of the leadership, you really get like a, a glimpse into their own personal moral compasses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, I remember hearing a story about a small group of college students and a professor in Germany prior to world war two that were, um, basically protesting and they were all, executed publicly very quickly. And I mean, that absolutely sends a message. Uh, I'll try to remember, or I'll try to uh, find find out a little bit more about that. It was called like the White Flower Group or something. Does this ring a bell at all? I haven't heard this. Okay. But um, this doesn't sound like a, a far out of left field story at all from no, Nazi Germany. absolutely. And that's, you know, that's how you just like crush the protesters. And then if you have... Um, you know, an ultra-nationalist leader that is, you know, they have some sort of fan base, if you will, with this cultish fervor where they would do anything for this fan base and this leader could do no wrong, you could be in a recipe for disaster. And it's like with these guys, you would probably have no idea that the will, the wheels were turning that would eventually put you in the crosshairs as some of the most evil people to ever walk the earth, you know? J- just because you're doing your job and you're wearing the uniform of the country where you grew up. You know, you you may have 
even had that job before those wheels started spinning and you'd probably be a victim of like frog in boiling water syndrome. You know, and the military command structure, which even though in Nuremberg they declared that just following orders was not a defense, the military command structure, you're still taught to follow the orders from your superiors without question. And, you know, in the in the American military, they have, you know, the clause of like de- of defying illegal orders but still like would you know an illegal order would i know an illegal order i don't know if i would yeah i would basically just think that whatever comes down is you know those are the things that are planned and those that's my job sure in hindsight none of that can forgive the crimes against humanity the nazis perpetrated right but it did help me understand how any one of us could be pulled into a scenario like that yeah and i think that's uh I don't think that's an unhealthy thing to understand that. I think that if we can be aware of that, then we can at least put up some sort of defense before it gets too far. And that, and yeah, we it just was, can't forget. We can't forget. I thought it, I, I found this to be like a really important piece of content just for my own brain. Mm-hmm. And you know, like because of all this stuff that's going through my head and because it is a dramatic film created to make you feel these things you know i actually found myself like worrying about these guys even though in any other movie they'd just be like the faceless enemy right and at some point you're like inadvertently rooting for them before you catch yourself and realize that they're like no matter what their own personal trials that they really are part of like the most evil movement of man that has ever existed but it's really interesting ping pong effect and it's something that like I haven't really felt watching any other piece of content. This is the only thing I've ever watched where I was like, oh, yeah, oh, wait, no. Ah, you're just back and forth the whole time because huh. you know the people that they're killing are like, those are the people that are that are on our side. Right. Interesting. It's kind of, and it's kind of like uh, I'm a big Walking Dead fan. And it's kind of like, you know, there's a Walking Dead theory that uh, if Negan's group, who is like, the main antagonist for several seasons, if he had been the group that you had started off following in the film or in the series, you would have just, you know, it'd be easy to ignore all the heinous acts that he committed on his way to just keeping his people safe. And when he came up against Rick, who is the protagonist of the show, you would just see him as the bad guy. It's all about like the lens that you're viewing it. Through. Absolutely. It's all about perspective. All yeah. the, from the bad guy's perspective, they're the good guys. No doubt. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's really interesting seeing how like your the moral compromises you make compound and become easier to make if the ideas behind them are state sponsored. So the characters all start out as very idealistic and believing themselves to be on the right side of history. And the big scale may not be up to them, but like small scale, their own personal lives, they feel that they're making the right choices. And they're they're repeatedly forced to fall in line with this oppressive system. And it not only tells them to do these horrible things, but it also tells them that they're right. And, you know, being told that, that, you know, things that you would consider to be bad are correct. And that coming from a higher power, you know, not necessarily a religious power, just higher than you. It really does like start to beat down your own psyche. And eventually, you know, you would... I would think you would just start kind of like drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit. And, you know, this was something that Hitler in particular was very, very good at too. Uh, You know, the, there, there, during that Nazi movement, 
they were using science. I mean, we know now that it was 100% pseudoscience, but they knew that to win over all of the support, they had to dress it up like legitimate science. And so that's where, you know, they they were saying like, we're going to build this master race. And if you look into the history of the Aryans, it all comes from uh, Madame Blavatsky. It's all a bunch of, it's a bunch of bullshit, but you know, they, they were their Their goal was to just gaslight people to use a term that I uh, hear a lot because it's happening a lot right now. And it, it was to manipulate people, but it was to dress it up as like evolutionary science. And it, it totally. worked. It worked. I mean, yeah, for it totally worked. Maybe people, um, you know, d- disagreed, but I, maybe it, maybe it just made them feel like a little less sick about what they were doing. And maybe some people like drank that Kool-Aid and, you know, were th- thought they were actually doing the right thing. Yeah. And there were people that bought in completely. You know, yeah. the people at the top. And then there were people that were just doing their job and made to feel better about it by the propaganda. Mm-hmm. Like I've got a, I've got like a personal anecdote about something like this specifically happening in my own brain. So it's, it's, it's definitely like a minor thing, but you know, it, I remember when this happened and I remember like trying to tell myself like, Oh, that's weird. That's not right. But at the same time, it's just like, there's like a flip that switched in my mind. So Everyone knows that I, I'm a foreman, as you coined, a former Mormon. And so growing up as a Mormon, I was told that drugs are evil. But of course, I did them anyways. Because, come on, of course I did. <laughs> but when I moved to Colorado, and weed is legal in Colorado, like I don't even smoke weed anymore. But when it was legalized, it was very slightly, and I'd say like very irrationally, it took away some of that old-fashioned religious guilt for me that I had buried away inside of me. And that's completely ridiculous because that's just the government saying, oh, this thing isn't illegal anymore. And I wasn't taught that drugs were evil because they were illegal. I was just taught that they were immoral. And just having that like that state-sponsored acceptance of marijuana, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to hell now. And then I was like, wait, I don't even believe in hell. <laughs> It's it's just so crazy like how the human mind works, you know? It's like you can't even control those things. Those those thoughts are like buried down within like your psyche and your soul and it's just it's just like basic human programming. Well, what what is frightening to me is how easy it is to get people riled up when it comes to us versus them, the fear of the other because it, tribalism is just built into the anatomy of our brains. I mean, it, it is a, just an undeniable fact of science that we are ape brains and we have evolved over a long period of time to be in these small tribes. And so, it, you know, it's it's not much of a stretch, unfortunately, that these fascist or, you know, these wannabe tyrant leaders that are around today are trying to hijack those tribalistic tendencies during a time of a lot of fear and uncertainty and and trying to, you know, in my opinion, cause violence. It's, it's a I very scary thing. There are very, very smart people that are working against our best interests. Yeah. Yeah. All in all, like, it's very clever writing. That 
the the portion with the Wehrmacht soldiers is, you know, that really sent me down a rabbit hole because it really helps drive you into their world by making these guys sympathetic. And I really appreciate they did it that way because that was really what hooked me right away on this story. Cool. Now with, uh, so Victor is the Jewish tailor. Like his story to me was by far the most disturbing and the easiest to relate to. Like I've never felt like in my personal life that I'm like a hugely empathetic person, but doing the show has really taught me something about myself. Like when I'm really digging deep into content, especially something like this, it's like really twisted. I find that I can relate to like this deep character strife. Like I find that my mind really wanders in the headspace of characters that go through these like hugely life altering events and that the types of things that dramatic narrative is really made of, but I can imagine myself in these intense scenarios and it's, it's just given me like more of an appreciation in the real world for when I see like, you know, people that are struggling in some way. And I didn't always used to be like that. I used to be like a little bit of a, I'd say like a low grade sociopath. (laughs) Maybe that's just what it's like being a teenager and a 20 year old. But you know, as, as I've grown up, like my empathy meter has really started to spike. So maybe that's good. You think that's a parenting imaginary hell? Yeah. Uh, I mean, parenting really helped a lot. Like having a, having a child change my brain entirely. Yeah. But, you know, it's even, I think it's just more than that. You know, it's just, it might just be gaining more maturity as I get older. But yeah. the, uh, the scenario that Victor goes through starts is just like this general oppression just on the street in Germany. And it evolves into this overt hostility and he can see the writing on the wall about what's coming, about what's coming to Germany and he sees his family's rights being slowly stripped away and because mainly just because of their Jewish heritage, like for no other reason. And he makes this harrowing attempt to flee the country, but he's apprehended, put on a train to Auschwitz. And it's terrifying because like what you were saying, if it happened once, it can happen again. And the vitriol, the Jewish people have faced for millennia always kind of struck me as just being so arbitrary. It's, it's something that's, based on like legends of things that happened thousands of years ago. It's completely blind to the fact that the tables could very easily have been turned on any one of these groups that sees themselves as superior. I guess, are you familiar with, I guess I'll call it the fable of the crucifixion. Uh, I don't think I am. No. What's that? Well, just Jesus's crucifixion. I call it a fable. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I know. It's a of... little fanciful, <laughs> For sure. but it's so, all stories, brother. We, you've all know Harari said it's all stories. It's all myths. It it really surprised me. I did this research today. This is something that, when I started thinking along these lines of thought, I was like, man, this is not where my brain would usually go, because most just like religious ideas, I they're just kind of in one ear and out the other with me. But I started going down a rabbit hole today researching the crucifixion and you know Jesus was apparently brought before the courts by the Jewish people of the time for blasphemy but most historians agree that he was actually on trial by the Romans for being a political threat to their rule and Pontius Pilate was the presiding judge like I was always under the impression that he sentenced Jesus to death but I was listening to the Rolling Stones song sympathy uh, sympathy for the devil and there's the line it's been around since Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt of faith 
made damn sure that Pilate washed his hands, sealed his fate. And I w- I'd never really understood what that line about Pilate meant. So I was researching about like, what was the, what was the part about him washing his hands? So I found this article on uh, Holocaust Encyclopedia. It's, uh, it was discussing like kind of the true meaning of what the hand washing signified. So there's the Bible verse in Matthew that makes it seem like Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. And in this symbolic way, he washed his hands and he said, I am innocent of this. Attend to it yourselves, like talking to the masses. And apparently, according to the Bible, the Jewish people said his blood be upon us and our children. And that, that line has been used for millennia as an excuse for all manner of horrible things by Christianity, like all, all manner of atrocities. So from that same article, like in the first millennium of the Christian era, leaders in the European Christian Catholic hierarchy developed or solidified as doctrine ideas that all Jewish people were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. The destruction of the temple by the Romans and the scattering of the Jewish people was punishment both for past transgressions and for continued failures to abandon their faith and accept Christianity. And that is some fucked up shit, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) That is... I have always... I've I've held this belief for a while that... And I've said this a few times that I think religion is the root of all evil. And when I was researching this, like, it truly solidified that thought in my mind. Like, this is such an evil idea. It's just the fact that this story, I mean, it's it's not even like historically, it's, I guess, I don't know, accurate is the word, but it's there's no confirmation of it. And like this line has been used as a jumping off point for just the worst things imaginable. Interesting. Well, I, you know, you know, I'm not a fan of uh, organized religion and I, I'm not really sure at what point like what threshold the well-intentioned um morality behind a lot of these ideologies kind of morphs into like a some sort of way to control or to manipulate minds or you know to to get big groups of people to work together maybe cooperatively then 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 it eventually becomes destructive but Man, it's it's scary. And the more that I see a lot of like fundamentalist religion uh, politicians now getting into politics, Oof, it, man. I mean, it definitely. I I feel. I thought that religion was on the decline, and there, you know, we were putting more faith into the scientific method. But I don't know. Just just uh, f- for my from my perspective, and it, this could be totally inaccurate, but it does feel like religions kind of making this comeback and it almost feels like nationalism is as well. And, 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 you know, some of these political, uh, ideologies on both sides, frankly, but one side I'm a little more worried about than the other, but it's almost become a religion. It's almost become like a religious dogma and it's, it's very frightening. It's a crazy time to be alive. It is. I hope, I hope we're not in, you know, the 1939 of today. Yeah. And I, I know that like, I know you have a bit of just like a spiritual side cause you kind of just 
like deep dive into the human mind. And I would say that I do too. You know, I, my ideas about religion as the root of all the evil, you know, I don't think that even discounts the idea that there may be some sort of intelligent design. I don't know. Agreed. My own personal beliefs don't eliminate that. I wouldn't call myself an atheist, but I just believe that organized religion at its highest levels has been responsible for some of the most heinous acts ever perpetrated by humans. Yeah. Plus I can't imagine that an all powerful and omnipotent God would be so insecure that he needed to be worshiped by humans. I've always (laughs) thought that was such a ludicrous concept that that has always struck me as a decidedly human invention and a way really to just to generate control. You know, it's, what I think that religion is all it's all about control. I mean what so one of the hip, of one of the hypocrisies that I've always seen is like, you know, we are the people that you need to come to to talk to God. You can't talk to God. You can't read scripture and understand this stuff. It's above your heads. You got to come to me. Like that Totally. <laughs> that to me what? right there is cha ching, it costs some money to come here and talk to God. <laughs> this is a collect call, buddy. Yeah, and um you know what? You don't have to pay taxes, by the way. Isn't that yeah. nice? That is so nice. It's so nice. What a loophole. I I think maybe we could make contentology a religion. I mean, we're working on it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's People, true. Send us your donations. And Get we- us into that tax-free bracket. <laughs> you know, I will say it's one mark for Mormonism that I was not taught that the Jewish people were responsible for Jesus's crucifixion. I was taught that Pontius Pilate made that choice. And a thought that I had when I was a kid was, I was like, man, since Pontius Pilate convicting Jesus of whatever his crime was and sentencing him to to death is basically what jump-started this entire mythological belief in Christianity. Don't you think it's time that instead of him being held accountable, he gets like a presidential pardon from yeah. God? I mean, <laughs> you guys wouldn't be anywhere without him. for Pilate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. There's another, there's another line in uh, Sympathy for the Devil that I've been listening to that song on repeat because it's just like, it just fits so well into this research, but uh, he says that I watched in glee as your kings and queens fought for 10 decades for the gods they made. And that perfectly sums up this entire problem. It's all, it's all, most of these wars just seems like it's people arguing over their made up stories. Yeah, it's true. You're right. And you know, it's something that frightens me is, you know, go into, uh, pretty much anywhere in the United States and just yell out like a hail Satan. (laughs) And you're probably going to raise a lot of eyebrows because, but you know, we have in God, we trust printed on our cash. And I mean, it's so deeply ingrained in our supposedly what should be a secular uh, political system, which it's not not up in here, buddy. And just go go against the grain a little bit. And, you know, those strong social forces that are just manipulating us at all times, both internally and externally for us to just fit in and just to cooperate with a group that, that thing that makes us so wonderful as humans, it can also really rear its ugly head. If you try to question the status quo, even if the status quo potentially is extremely dangerous. Yeah. And there's definitely like wool being pulled over your eyes at all time. I mean, it's like 
that's a big part of this series. You know, it's like the guys in the war, they're, they don't know what half of this is happening. They don't know about the concentration camps. They don't know about any of this stuff. They're basically just doing their job and they're kind of blind to a lot of this stuff. Yeah. How um, historically accurate is this show? Have you looked into that at all? Uh, well, it's there's no one that could really say for sure. Yeah. There were some people, like when I talk about the review later, um, I will get into like some of the uh, criticisms of the show, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot of people that are saying it's wrong. There was, there was no one that came out and just said that like, this is not how it was. So it seems like they really did the research and tried to make it as accurate as possible. Like they really don't pull any punches about making Germany seem evil at the time Hmm. and this Mm -hmm. is made in germany right so i think it's when i was researching this part you know about about victor and about the path he takes i I had the thought too that you know the butterfly effect of basically how this this like i don't know i guess this hatred for the jewish people came to be you know it's it's really like it could have just as easily have dropped the Aryan race into its crosshairs back in the time of Jesus. And it's not hard to imagine, especially with the exposure, how fragile our world is, things like that happening here or anywhere. And any one of us being in this position, you know, having like your, your rights legally stripped away. Like as I sit here in my podcast studio, looking at all this cool stuff on my walls, got my drones, my transformer toys, my skydiving gear. I realize like these things are all like the spoils of a very blessed existence that could be taken away like so easily. Yeah. It makes me so thankful for the time that we live in, even with all the insanity of our world, like it could be so much worse. It's really up to all of us, you know, to make a difference every day and like live the lives that we want other people around us to live and treat everyone with respect that humanity deserves. Every everyone is entitled to the the same awesome life that we both live. Amen and hail Satan, absolutely. <laughs> you got it, buddy. <laughs> it's pretty heavy. There was wow. there's one brief moment of levity. Like I actually like laughed out loud. It might just be because I just recently w- learned what a schnitzel is. <laughs> but there's this part where they're like they're walking through this village that they've just like occupied and there's like a little chicken following and and one of the guys is like come along schnitzel (laughs) (laughs) i just i always thought that a schnitzel was like some sort of hot dog but i just learned that it's like a pounded flat chicken with like bread basically like my favorite way to eat chicken ever and it was right in the middle of like all this deep heavy shit in my mind and then he's like come along little schnitzel (laughs) i was was like laughing so hard it was people like hey Josh, shut up. We're trying to watch Moana or whatever. <laughs> yeah, schnitzel. When I used to fly uh, to uh, delicious. Germany, I used to get the schnitzel in, in um, Hahn, Germany, and in Leipzig, there was a good good schnitzel place. So good, but Billy. It, I think it can be pork, too. Yeah, but it's, you can probably prepare it that way. Yeah, they smash it, flatten it's it. good. It is good. This is now the schnitzel show, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Schnitzel Show. So I haven't really talked about like the fighting at all. Like, there's a lot of fighting. It's basically the Band of Brothers uh, format, 
but it's really like it's really visceral in this movie. Like the sound design is really scary. There's a definite like cacophony of war. Wait, you said movie. You mean TV series, right? TV series, yeah, film, dramatic, dramatic uh, TV play. Uh, Like I was shooting (laughs) guns recently, and I took my took my ear protection off just to fire a few shots without it, and it is like overbearingly loud. And I think about that when I watch films like this. You know, like World War II, nobody's using ear protection. There's this one bit of sound design that really brought home like how terrifying it would be to be in an artillery attack. There's like this deep, bassy, these like whooshes. They're really unlike anything I've ever heard in a movie or a film or anything before. But the deepness and like the unfamiliarity with it, it's the sound of the incoming barrage. It seems specifically designed to put the fear of God into you as a viewer. And I think it like perfectly captured what I imagine these intense scenarios would be like. It's, It's like a place that no human is ever really supposed to be. You know, it's just like, raining death from the sky so the, wow. the combat real good in this movie wow tv play tv Brent. play <laughs> <laughs> oh man what are the general snobs gonna say about this episode when we recall the tv say the movie their new favorite podcast <laughs> I, I was researching i'd heard this at one point uh the lead I heard it was illegal to use Nazi imagery in Germany. So I was researching that. Yeah, that's true. And I was under the impression that displaying like swastikas in any way was illegal. And what I found was the entertainment software self regulation body, the USK, they do not permit, permit Nazi symbols, including Hitler's face anywhere in video games. So there's a lot of video games that have basically been banned from Germany for essentially even though the Nazis are the enemies, just any of that iconography is just banned. Wow. So Germany, the law considers swastikas swastikas, and the SS runes, the symbol, uh, they're symbols of anti-constitutional organizations and displaying the publicly or selling goods that sports them is illegal. The Nazi salute statements such as Heil Hitler are also completely banned, which is a great move. But, uh, those symbols can be used and they can be uh, they can be displayed if they're used for like civic education, countering anti-constitutional activities, art and science research, uh, the covering of historic and current events or, you know, things like that along those lines. So I, I would imagine that, you know, this fell into, you know, the covering of historic events and that's how they got around every, you know, all the swastikas and Nazi symbology in this in this show. Yeah. I know even for uh, like American TV shows and movies and dramatic television plays, um, anytime they have to use Nazi imagery for accuracy or for the storytelling, they they all treat it like you know it's destroyed afterwards. Like it's it's um, really it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, they probably don't want like they don't want the props being sold off to like a bunch of assholes. Right. He, you know yeah. what? You know what makes me happy just a little bit when i what? see like a really shitty graffiti drawing in like a <laughs> bathroom of a swastika but they can't do it right because they're fucking stupid <laughs> oh man that is like a double failure of the human race right it there. is it, it but it's just like yeah if you're stupid enough to believe in that ideology then 
you're stupid enough to not be able to draw a couple of lines too. You're, you're like a shithead, but you're also <laughs> like real bad at being a shithead. <laughs> that is like bring a little like joy to my heart. It'll warm up my yeah my soul. Why not? We gotta so we gotta we, grab onto whatever right now. So grab it. <laughs> so we talked earlier about you were asking about like the historical accuracy. So I yeah. found a review on the Guardian. And like their main question was, is this series overly sympathetic to the Nazis? Mm-hmm. And they said that no television program has ever caused as much debate in German society as Generation War. Untamata, if you will. <laughs> the initial response was that it was brave and original, and that soon turned into accusations of it being overly sympathetic. Several leading historians criticized the drama for showing like all Germans as victims or like failing to depict the power ideology of the period. But I, you know, that is not the way that it it really seems like that strikes me as, I don't know. That strikes me as kind of like falling into the way I feel about critics in general, how they're a lot of times they're looking for a reason to have a problem with pop culture like I felt that it was important for the story to make the characters you're following sympathetic because for anyone to be able to relate th- to them, you have to have some kind of foothold and you got to be able to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And it does, it does not really portray the Germans as victims. It portrays them as some of them as being in circumstances that they didn't choose, but it also shows like the very dark side of what was happening and like how these orders are coming down and things like that. Interesting. I wonder if any of that feedback or that criticism just has to do with like a resurgence of fascism, both in the United States and in Europe. So maybe that, you know, people are just really concerned that if there's even a thread of, you know, understanding something from a Nazi's perspective could be potentially dangerous. But I mean, I, I, I'm definitely in the camp that it's important to understand that, like I said, these are people and we, you know, we got to realize that fact so that we never become those people ever, ever. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the, the show is not sympathetic to the Nazi movement. It's very straightforward about the evils of the Nazis, the individual characters, obviously, they're they're written in a way that they want the viewer to follow along. Yeah. But, you know, I think the there are things happening now that I'm sure history will not look back kindly on. Yeah. But the world is so big and so complex that not everyone can be the moral crusader. And looking back on Nazi Germany, you know, it's easy to judge. But when you're living in the real world, not everyone can see the big picture. Not everyone is a military or political strategist that can see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, I'm not sure if this film's portrayal is accurate. It definitely made me think about how easy it may have been to just go about your life, look the other way, do your job. And one day you wake up and realize you're part of a movement that will forever change the world for the worst. You know, even if it's not exactly how it happened, I thought the series was important. I, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a good thought exercise into the way the world could slide into evil again, just like you're saying. I found it all very compelling, and I definitely recommend Generation War for anyone who's interested in World War II, history, or human psychology. Wow. Well, thanks, Josh. That's incredible. I think I understand the title now. I mean, I think that it's the modern 
wonderful Germans of today saying like, you know, for better, for worse, these are our mothers and our fathers right here. Could be. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm going for. Now you're making me feel bad for mocking the title, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's You're right. It's very astute. Because it's like probably kind of a meta nod at like, hey, I know things are different now, but we have we have to remember these are these could be anyone's mothers and fathers. I don't know. It could have still workshopped it a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. <laughs> who's to say? I'm just grabbing at schnitzel here. So, aren't we all, buddy? <laughs> now that I know what it is, I'm all about it. Welcome to the schnitzel show. <sighs> well. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate that uh, deep dive. That's a pretty heavy topic, uh, which is one of my favorite kinds of topics, as you know. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in once again to the Content Clearinghouse. Uh, Remember, we got the show notes with all our links and references. We have our uh, Instagram. We have a Facebook at the Content Clearinghouse. You can email at us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. We hope that you tune in again. We got some interesting stuff coming down the pipeline. So uh, thanks for listening and stay tuned.